everybody, and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, Digiday's senior reporter. Joining us on today's episode is Brady Walkinshaw, the CEO of Grist, a nonprofit environmental news publisher based in Seattle, Washington. As a nonprofit, Grist relies primarily on contributions from its readers and from larger foundations, but it also is innovating on how it's obtaining that funding, including using a membership model. Today, we'll talk about how Grist is diversifying, as well as what fundraising for an environmental publisher looks like at the end of the Trump era. Welcome, Brady, and thanks for joining us today. It's great to be on. All right. Well, why don't we start out by going over um, the mission of Grist and you know, a little bit about the background of Grist for those who might not be familiar. Absolutely. So I've been heading up Grist for about the last three and a half years. And my background was previously, I was in politics. I was a state legislator in Washington State for several years and uh, worked for the Gates Foundation for a number of years too. And um, I, my background really is in environmental work. And Grist itself is a publication that's about 20 years old. We were founded uh, very early in kind of internet blogging, um, late 1990s. And at the time, we were just started as an email list that was putting together emails and doing kind of a, an aggregation of different environmental news and turning an email product that gradually grew into a media site. And then today, uh, we're an organization of about 50 people. We're based in Seattle, really distributed around the country. We have a little office in Brooklyn. Um, and our mission as an organization is to make the story of a better future so irresistible that you want it right now. And the whole idea behind that is to take a, a broad issue, which is environment and climate issues and justice, and think about how that intersects into our daily lives in the United States and beyond. And our, our coverage areas is a publication really span um, a gamut, but we really focus it on what we kind of call three areas. One is solutions, so thinking about how we solve the climate crisis. The second is justice, so thinking about how a climate and solving the climate crisis really does connect to and is at the intersection of issues of economic justice, racial justice, social justice, um, and other factors that, that really impact our ability to move beyond carbon. And then the third area for us is is really thinking about is thinking about just climate change broadly and thinking about how is it that we um, explore all aspects of that, whether it's the future of the energy se- energy sector, the future of the food system. Um, dynamics that are playing out around the country today um, with respect to politics and, and you know, everything else that impacts uh, our ability to make progress in addressing uh, the existential threat that is climate change. Awesome. Yeah. And so um, I'm curious, and I guess this is a little bit more of a, a curiosity for me, but, um, you know, Grist, you said, is about 20 years old, um, and it is a nonprofit. I know some other media companies that um, are very, like, um, cause-based, looking to, you know, cover issues, do good work in in the world. Um, They're considered, like, B Corps, um, which I think gives a little bit more flexibility in, like, diversifying revenue streams and and things of that nature. Um, Why is that not the choice for Grist? We. This is just how we were started, and I, you know, there's a whole number of groups that are, you know, doing really awesome mission-based journalism as nonprofits that I would kind of regard as fellow travelers of ours. Whether it's, you know, friends of ours at the Trace working on gun violence, or folks at the Mar- Marshall Project doing great work on criminal justice, or, uh, you know, larger outfits like ProPublica or more regionally focused nonprofits like the Texas Tribune. Um, we we too are are an organization that is has adopted a nonprofit model. And I can talk a little bit about our, our business. Would it be helpful just to give a little background on on what that looks like for us as for our business model? Yeah, it would be great because um, I think last time we talked, you mentioned that uh, a large chunk of your revenue comes from um, contributions and donations. So I think that'd be good to kind of map out. 
Totally. And I think a lot of you know, le- folks who are leading nonprofit publishers right now are thinking a lot about their business model and how is it that we can support the mission-driven impact of our work, which is getting extremely good stories and reporting and journalism and film and and other forms of multimedia communications out in front of a broad audience. And to do that at Grist, um, the way that our business model has grown over the years is uh, to support our work this year. It's it it you know out of an overall budget of about six and a half seven million dollars. Um, we are really fortunate to rely on a lot of small dollar donors. So, so folks who just read our work, love it, um, support it on a monthly basis. And we have about 5,000 people like that around the country who just, you know, in the same way you might support your local NPR affiliate, um, in public broadcasting or public radio, uh, you also have support Grist. So we have about 5,000 low dollar, low dollar members, which mm-hmm. who, you know, we send out t-shirts, coffee mugs, and they're really kind of a lot of our core supporters. We also generate revenue um, from mis- what we call mission aligned corporate partners. So we work with companies like Patagonia, or we work with um, advertising partners um, that, that share our mission around sustainability and then also advertise on Grist. And that generates about 5% of our budget. Um, but the the lion's share of our support, so most most of our revenue, comes through partnerships that we have with foundations around the country who care about nonprofit journalism and who care about climate change and environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, yeah, I did want to get into some of those, um, as you mentioned, like lower level donors. Um, you said that you have about 5,000 of them. Is that the, I guess, membership um, the membership business that, uh, like, I guess, would you call that a membership um, that you have there? Is that like a recurring revenue source for you? Is that usually one-off donations? You know, it's a combo. It's folks who just give once a year who might just Mm -hmm. see an annual appeal from us online when you, you know, go to visit grist.org and it says, you know, support critical nonprofit journalism and climate reporting. You know, folks will give maybe $25, $50. Um, or, or there are also a number of people um, who you know might make a recurring ten dollar a month contribution. Mm-hmm. And as I think about the future of how you support nonprofit journalism, this is an area that we think I believe has a ton of potential. And you know, if you look at ways that large, large nonprofit environmental organizations like the Sierra Club or the Nature Conservancy have supported a lot of their work over the years, they have tons of, of folks around the country who millions of members who make small contributions that really help support the overall functioning and running of the organization. I, I think that's applicable also to nonprofit media and nonprofit journalism and specifically cause-based nonprofit journalism, like mm-hmm. us who are working on environmental issues or, you know, there's other nonprofit outlets that are working on criminal justice or gun violence or other really, really important issues to society that, that there are huge audiences out there for whom this is a, a hyper resonant and galvanizing issue. And I think there are a lot of opportunities to build that number of 5,000 and into a much bigger number. Yeah. What would be your, I guess, goal for what that number might be one day? Uh, you know, I think the, the market is enormous and that mm-hmm. climate is increasingly, you know, one of the, the top of mind issues to a growing, growing, growing number of Americans. I do think that in terms of what that target would mean for us, I I think that it's the sort of, I think what's what's held us back is that not enough people know about Grist and our work. So for us as an organization, we're actually working toward a, a relaunch of the brand, which will happen hopefully in late January, February of next year. 
that we hope will come with a lot of awareness building. So mm-hmm. my my aspiration is that we're really able to to build the brand equity, the brand awareness, and that that in turn will generate um, more a larger audience, and in turn that larger audience will hopefully lead to more folks who might give us five, ten, twenty five, hundred dollars a month to support good work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm also curious. Um, I guess like is the average donation level or I guess what would you consider to be the the lower end of like do you have a cap for what you would consider to be like a lower level donation from individuals and then what's the average within that oh sure you know it's you get a lot of sometimes especially during covid when we've all been distributed from our offices and working from home sometimes i've i've picked up the keys and gone into the office to check the mail and when you check the mail like sometimes you'll open envelopes and there'll be like a handwritten note from a fifth grader who's giving you $5 because oh. they felt like it was really obviously they they think about climate change all the time and wanted to support the work so i would say it's a real range mm-hmm. um internally we we regard membership this is just sort of nonprofit fundraising but we regard mm-hmm. membership as anyone who's giving us under $1000 a year okay and then when we have donors who are generously investing more than $1,000 a year in our work, then they're sort of part of a different giving category for us. But but really, we think of our membership program. So when I say 5,000, that means 5,000 people who on an annual basis are investing less than $1,000 a year in grist. Got it. And I would say the median, the median, I'd have to fact check myself, but I would say the median contribution must be probably around 50 or $75. That would be my guess. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so, I mean, within that, I think it would be good to talk about um, maybe what fundraising looks like, I guess, going back to the Trump era and kind of talking about, um, you know, some events that have laid out in the past three and a half years um, that might have enticed some people to give more. Um, one thing that I can think of is, uh, you know, Trump deciding that we're going to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Um, mm-hmm. Did that, you know, cause any increase in um, donations or um, fundraising for Grist? Um, did you see an increase of support at that time? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that you absolutely saw spikes over the last four years uh, when you saw attacks on environmental issues, climate, um, whether it's you know Paris or. Arctic Nas- drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, whether it's the attacks on public lands in the southeast, southwest. I think that mm-hmm. you saw that. You certainly saw that happen. I, I've been reflecting on this a lot now, thinking about what the outcomes are likely to be from the election. It was not a kind of universal mandate across the country. And I think it for us, I've been reflecting that it, it also points to the need for a lot more storytelling and narrative and engaging engaging new and different audiences on climate change and and what it is that it means to solve the crisis. So I I do I've been thinking a lot about what that means for membership going forward too and I I think there is almost a equal if not more powerful story to tell into the next 4 years about how we how we bring more people along uh through creative work on on narrative. So I really don't anticipate I wouldn't anticipate that number declining mm-hmm. under a future administration. I, I think sometimes people give when they're excited about good things too. And membership can grow when folks are excited about good things, not just attacks or assaults on on the environment. 
Yeah, interesting. Um, I definitely think that makes sense. Um, curious, like around those events that you laid out, um, that you did see some spikes in donations. Um, did you use that at all in like marketing to drive donations to Grist? Like, did you say, you know, Trump uh, pulled us out of the Paris Agreement, so you know now's your chance to give twenty dollars to make a difference. Anything like that, or was that not really like your style? That really, honestly, wasn't as much our style. That wasn't a lot, a lot, a lot of I would say nonprofits that are more in the advocacy and action space in the environmental movement do do that, and I think mm -hmm. that's terrific. I feel like we've typically kept our focus on the importance of nonprofit journalism and the importance of reporting and being able to support more reporters and journalists and editors to produce great content that our, our longtime, one of our longtime grist taglines has been that we're a beacon in the smog. And I mm -hmm. think this idea of, you know, in bad times that we can be a beacon that's, you know, providing solutions and illuminating, illuminating what's happening is really important. So we actually have done less of, I guess, kind of that, that type of more, I don't want to call it kind of fear-based fear-based fundraising, but I, I think that can be very effective and I support it, but that's not typically how we've framed our messaging. Got it. Okay. So I do want to get into some of the editorial too, because as I was poking around on um, Grist's website, I noticed that you have a, a couple different um, editorial initiatives, uh, one of them being Fix. Um, can you talk about you know the decision to, or not decision to, but I guess how you came to create that editorial initiative and some of those editorial packages that, to your point, really focus in on, um, you know, supporting the journalism. A absolutely. So at Grist, we're, we're really structured with these three parts. We have our editorial program, which is a longtime program of ours, which is headed up by our editor who's based in Atlanta named Nikhil Swaminathan, who's terrific. And the edit team, you know, has editors, staff writers, work with a lot of contributing writers and freelancers. And that team, you know, does everything from deep form, long form investigations. We do a lot of co-publishing with, we just co-published a great piece with uh, Miami Herald around an environmental justice story with the Miami Herald. We do a lot of kind of longer form collaboration, short form news, um, video content, a whole variety of pieces, you know, daily newsletters. The second program at Grist was what you just alluded to, uh, which we call Fix, and we describe that as our solutions lab. Mm -hmm. And what that's about is really connecting and elevating the leaders and the solutions that they're advancing that we believe will advance progress on solving the climate crisis. So every year, Grist produces something called the Grist 50, which we take in nominations from you know hundreds of people. We get 1,000, 1,500 nominations to this list, which are we think of it as the 50 emerging leaders at the forefront of environment justice and sustainability. And then we publish this list, and then we really work to build a community of the people who we're featuring. And then we we use editorial an editorial strategy, kind of a storytelling strategy, to report on and tell the stories of the solutions that are being advanced by these leaders that we're featuring. Um, so that's been a really exciting editorial. That's been a really exciting initiative for us, mm -hmm. and we've seen it grow in a lot of ways. So that that's the second one. And the third thing we do is we 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 call it kind of talent initiatives. We historically in the environmental movement, there's been a real lack of representation of people of color and a real lack of representation of diversity. Um, and that that same thing is, is obviously true in journalism. So we've been very, very focused on how is it that Grist can help advance equity and representation in the environmental journalism field. So we, we have about 12 to 15 fellows who are early career writers, mostly writers of color coming through Grist next year. 
Uh, we support a lot of writers of color, journalists of color in publications around the United States who are in other publications through a network. So we do we do a lot of work that we, we think about what's related to kind of representation in media. And going back to the grist 50 that you mentioned, um, those lists, I guess, um, in my mind, every time I've covered a publication that has a list like that, it's usually like a revenue driver to a certain degree, like a franchise that's built out around it, um, you know, events, currently virtual events, um, you know, special issue magazines, things like that. Um, is that a revenue driver for Grist or is this purely an editorial play? It's not a revenue. It's a great question. It's something I've we've reflected on a lot. It has not been for us historically, mm-hmm. but it's, I think, a great opportunity in the future. So may, maybe there are ways that we can build out awards around it. Maybe there are ways that we can start to create new lists. I think because we're a mission-driven organization, the, the focus of that list and that work will never be solely revenue. But I, I do think there are opportunities as it grows to attract a much, much, much broader audience to the work. There might be opportunities to do more of an event strategy around it. Um, there could be opportunities to expand it beyond the United States, maybe to, to start looking at lists globally that feature these same sets of emerging leaders. So we it's definitely the, the core behind it is mission-based, but I, I do think that there, there could be a longer-term um, way to co- at least cover our costs or start to create some revenue around what, what it costs to kind of run a project like that. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the past, um, what is it, like eight months now. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like, I think one of the silver linings, um, slight silver linings that has come out of this pandemic is that fewer people are commuting and are on the move. So like traffic emissions are down. Um, and I think I've, and obviously you're more of the environmental expert here, but, um, I've read in a few places that, um, pollution is down and the ozone layer is repairing itself to a certain degree, things like that. Um, I'm curious, like, has your editorial coverage shifted at all? Um, or did you launch any projects kind of tied to, um, some of the maybe slight silver linings Mm -hmm. like that, um, over the past few months? It's interesting. At the beginning of COVID, um, some of our most widely read stories, we've had one writer who's just amazing named Shannon Osaka, who's on the team. She um, has been covering that that question a fair bit. So looking Mm -hmm. at kind of the relationships between COVID emissions um, and what those might be on an ongoing basis. So we've certainly been covering that pretty closely. The The other aspect I'd say over the last eight to nine months has been as as there have been more protests and as there's been, you know, a really important conversation around black lives and and racial injustice that has taken over the country, we've also been reporting much, much more deeply on issues of, of race and justice and climate, which mm-hmm. has been another focus of ours um, over the last several months. We we launched a, a, a big package called Gasping for Air over the summer that was looking at relationships um, between climate environment and uh, particularly BIPOC communities in America, um, which has been going really well. And I would say that in addition to that, um, yes, in addition to that, I would say we've continued to really think about the kind of underlying climate COVID relationships that have been ongoing. I mean, you've obviously seen a real dip in air travel, which is a major emission, a major driver of emissions. You've seen 
a drop, but actually not as not as high as you might expect from reduced commuting. You're still seeing hmm. you, you're actually already seeing a, a pretty strong rebound in 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 drivership and commuting rates, which have surprised me in terms of how they're all already starting to reapproach levels that they were at pre-COVID. Um, Interesting. So you know, there there certainly has been an impact, but I think globally, people there have been different different predictions, but usually they put it somewhere between a dip and like five to 15%. Um, mm-hmm. and I, one of the, one of the reasons for that, and I think in, in climate environmental world, it's, it's because a lot of the drivers for our emissions are just, you know, people are at home. Energy is a huge driver of that. People might be heating their homes even more over the winter off of, off of sources that are driven by fossil fuels, even more so than they might've otherwise. So there's a, there's a lot of things that might actually even be upping our emissions during COVID that we might not even expect. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess I didn't, um, definitely didn't realize that. It might make sense if people are doing more of these staycations or driving up to, you know, the Poconos for a long weekend. Maybe that's where the car emissions are kind of coming back from. Um, but yeah, that that's really interesting. Um, so I also wanted to talk about the, um, as you laid out your revenue kind of, you said that you have the lower level donations, um, that membership kind of level, and then you have the lion's share of your um, revenue coming from um, larger foundation partners. I would say, is that how you would describe them? Yes, yes. We're really fortunate to have a whole a whole number of national foundations that support us. Yeah, um, I'm curious at all. Like, I know that, um, and it's a different model. Obviously, you don't consider them as like advertisers. They're not really advertisers, but I'm curious, like in the past several months, um, did you see a dip in, um, revenue coming from, um, these supporters at all as their businesses might've been struggling or, or they've just had to deal with, you know, the effects of COVID themselves? Um, has that had any kind of impact on your revenue or is year over year, you kind of like pretty even? Uh, interestingly, interestingly, no, we've been really fortunate to have kind of continued support from a lot of our partners mm-hmm. across the board. Oh, interesting. Got it. Um, yeah. And then I guess I'm also curious, like, do you do anything, um, from a revenue perspective that is, um, like, I guess tied to more of that advertising side of things. You said you had a, a few mission aligned contributions earlier. W- what does that kind of mean in the context of your business? Sure. So that that's an area where I see a lot of potential. And I know that different nonprofit publishers are probably thinking about this differently, but we've found a really, to me, like a really exciting and mission aligned niche there. Mm-hmm. And basically what we've we've done is we've we've built out a in, in kind of media terms, what you might call a sponsored content strategy, but really a strategy where we've partnered with different groups and they could be companies, they could be foundations uh, who are supporting different projects in the environmental space or in the environmental movement. And then what we've done is is written up stories that we've then published as sponsored content uh, telling the stories that these organizations um, are sponsoring to have told. So an example of that is we've worked really closely with a foundation called the Kresge Foundation out of Detroit uh, to tell stories through visual photography of partners of, the, of theirs who they're investing in around the country doing environmental justice work. Another example is that we've worked really closely with 
um, a group called the the Foundation for Climate Restoration that's been doing really interesting work on on climate reporting on different stories of projects that they are also supporting and investing in. So we we we've found an interesting niche there that it's not a huge part of our revenue, mm-hmm. but it but it's one that I think there's a lot of potential to grow into the future. And you know we have a, a, a collaborators within Grist who are responsible for producing and generating the content. So while you see this kind of sponsored content strategy that a lot of publishers pursue, it's been a nice niche for us because it's it's very aligned with our mission. It's writing stories about organizations that are doing really, in our minds, important things for the climate, but but doing it through a sponsored content approach. So that's yeah. been that's been the lion's share of of that of that revenue stream. Got it. Is that um I guess do you have like a sales team that's particularly seeking out these groups or how does how does that kind of side of things work? Because it is a, a slightly different setup versus a traditional publisher or something yeah. like that. I mean, a, a sales team is a generous way of describing it. It's small, small and nimble. <laughs> um, it's it's one really terrific person on the team who heads up business development, mm-hmm. and then he works with uh, a small team that he's assembled on the production side. That's doing you know editing and in some cases video production. Um, in some cases, it's on the ground reporting or photography. So it's it's really headed up by um one one person on the team who is most frequently interfacing with potential clients who are interested in this kind of work. Awesome. How many clients have you had so far? And I guess when did you really launch that um, side of the business? Is this relatively new? I would say it's relatively new that we've scaled it. I think mm-hmm. we'd always done a little bit of it, um, but we've it's certainly relatively new that we've scaled it because it's it's been such a nice fit for different partners and. That's a good question about how many actually clients we have in this space. I'm not, I couldn't tell you the specific number, but it, it's probably, my guess is right now that it's probably around a dozen. That That's really awesome. I'm curious. Um, I, I do want to get into kind of your 2021 plans and, and goals for Grist. I know you mentioned that in the first quarter of the year, you're going to be looking to relaunch the brand um, and kind of uh, maybe reintroduce it to people who aren't super familiar. Um, but what are some of the other goals or aspirations, um, that you have for Grist and what some of those projects might look like for the new year? Well, I was going to start, I should, I should retroactively give a quick pitch for our, our podcast. We just launched a new podcast last week called Temperature Check, which is hosted by someone really terrific on the team named Andrew Simon, who used to be at Fast Company ESPN. Uh, and it's really what we're using the podcast to really explore, conversations around the intersection of race, justice, and and, and climate. Um, and th- we've featured a, a number of people. We've released three episodes so far. Uh, so check that out. It's on the on the Apple Store uh, is, our, is our first podcast that we've launched. I think going into this next year, there's a, a number of areas that we're really interested in. I think you'll see our editorial team doing more longer form explanatory journalism into really important themes. So there's there's a lot of we just rolled out a, a multi-part series, for instance, with a collaboration with a group called the Center for Public Integrity that was looking at the impacts of nitrogen based fertilizers on climate. And I think we'll probably do some other kind of longer form series in that same vein that are looking at solutions and different parts of solving the climate crisis. So we're, we're really interested in that. We're also really looking at deepening our work on environmental justice. A couple of years ago, we launched an environmental justice desk, and we now have about five or six folks on the team who are reporters and editors uh, doing a lot of longer form community-based reporting on environmental justice, but also shorter form things too. So I see a lot of growth in our environmental justice coverage. 
And just recently, actually, we're starting to, to look at launching an indigenous desk, thinking about about ways we we both collaborate and support more journalism by indigenous writers uh, around the country. So that that's also something that is kicking off into the next year. The other the other piece I'll say is that on the um, on the fixed side that you brought up before, which we describe as mm-hmm. our solutions lab, we we will be reproducing the grist list, the grist fifty list that'll launch again in the spring. And we're looking at really, you use the word franchise, which we also use internally, really looking at ways to grow that franchise. So we're thinking about uh, different products that we might roll out over the course of the year that that are really about featuring and elevating leaders uh, in creative ways who are at the forefront of the fight to solve the climate crisis. Got it. Would that be like virtual events maybe? or It could be virtual events. It could be new lists. Um it could be regional lists. It could be a global list. We've we've talked about ideas. We are going to be doing something toward the end of the year, which you see a lot of publications do, which is around predictions for the subsequent year. So mm-hmm. we're going to be doing 21 predictions for 2021 from a whole group of leaders that a bunch of folks on the team are working on right now. So th- okay. things like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I should have asked this earlier. Um, you, you laid out that you have launched new desks recently and um, you have a, a pretty robust team, it seems. How, how large is your operation? your editorial operation? Our whole staff for the entire organization is about mm-hmm. 50. Okay. Um, and of that, you know, we also, we have our editorial team, but then we also have a number of people doing work on storytelling and kind of content that are within the the solutions lab that we described. So the, our program team is probably close to 25, 30. Okay, got it. Um, is video a large part of your operation at all? I know you're in podcasting now. Um, do you... I don't know, have visions for video coming through at all? You know, that we have this really, we have two really extraordinary video producers on the team. And our video strategy has had a couple of components. One is that we've we've done a lot of short form content that has been more in the the mold of explainers on different topics. So we have a a series that a great producer on the team named Jesse Nichols produces. It's really around climate and solutions, science and solutions. So mm-hmm. he looks at things, everything from like the potential of geothermal energy to to solve climate change. He's done interesting things about different technologies. He's done a lot actually of exploring different forms, the impacts of different forms of like mobility and urbanism and how, how the transportation grid connects to solving climate change. So he, he does a lot of these kind of three to five minute short form explainers around science and solutions. The other thing that we've done is that we're interested in growing is a more longer form kind of mini doc style um, format mm. with with our content, which have been around 12 to 15 minutes. And they've they've really often accompanied longer form stories. So last year we launched, we, we published a piece that actually won some great awards that was tracking the impact of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline that was a pipeline that was proposed um, along the east coast of the United States. Uh, to to move natural gas, and it was being advanced by a company called Dominion. That that pipeline was later canceled. So Dominion mm-hmm. shelved the the pipeline after a lot of protest and a number of factors over the last couple months. But we, in the process of that, did a really long form piece that we co reported um, with a small small outfit out of Georgia called Southerly, and it was penned by a journalist named Lindsay Gelpin. And in in addition to that, we produced a really great little short form documentary that was about ten to fifteen minutes that accompanied the publication of that piece. So we're, we've used our mini doc format to to bring more life to longer form investigations or stories that we've done in the past. So we're we're hoping to do more of that too. 
Awesome. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned that that's in the 12 to 15 minute kind of range and you had some shorter form video. Um, what platforms are you prioritizing for for that? And I, I'm also curious, like in general for Grist's coverage, do you have a strong um, social focus at all? Are you mostly on O&O platforms? Um, yeah. So right now the video strategy has been, we've been really trying to build up our YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. We'd love to be doing more of that. The other, the other piece is on social. We, we do publish over, you know, Instagram. Um, we do publish over, over, over Twitter and, and Facebook and so forth, but we would really like to coming out of the rebrand. We're also thinking about how we, we really grow that social presence. Mm-hmm. So that's something we've been we have been thinking a lot about, but but we are currently on all those platforms. Got it. Um, and I'm curious because I feel like every publisher that has any semblance of a, a video operation, they're thinking about OTT and and going that route. Is that at all a, a glimmer on the horizon for you, or is that kind of not a top priority? It might be. It's something the team's talking about. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what path they what paths they go down. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely feel like the door has been opened to that platform and that's the new frontier for a lot of publishers. I wanted to go back to uh, the election a little bit as well. You mentioned that you've been thinking about what the different outcomes could mean for um, how you approach content and, and what your strategy is going to be for Grist, um, you know, coming out of this. Um, I guess I'm curious, like, if you could get into a little bit more of what either outcome could mean for um, what you're viewing as a business strategy or an editorial strategy for Grist. Um, You know, I mean, I feel like, as you mentioned, um, people also donate when there's good news. They donate when there's bad news. Do you have a strategy kind of built around um, the outcome here at all? You know, maybe first I'll just quickly say what I what I think the outcomes mean for the planet, and mm-hmm. and I think that because that that really helps inform our strategy as as an organization that's reporting on on climate progress and thinking mm-hmm. about that story of climate progress. So first of all, I think there's going to be a, a big story to be told about how over the next four years, um, how is it that we really undo all of the bad things that happened to the environment and climate at the federal level through departmental and agency actions over the last four years. So, and there'll be a a big story to be told there. We've been doing a lot of coverage around the elections and I think there'll be a lot of coverage over the next year that looks about, looks at how we undo the the bad that happened over the last four years and then set a a good course through agency and administrative action on climate. The second thing that I think is going to happen is that the the EPA, um, the Environmental Protection Agency um, will, which, which is primarily a regulatory agency that's regulating, you know, good and bad things that happen to, to climate around the country and a lot of state agencies that are involved with that. And there'll be a really important push to make sure that the, the, the Environmental Protection Agency has a really strong regulatory strategy on emissions and really gets the clean power plan back in place that was shelved during the Trump administration. And then the, the third thing that I think will happen is that because it looks very likely that the Senate, the U.S. Senate will either be quite close or controlled by Republicans, it, it looks like there will be a push to find if there are any pathways for bipartisan action on climate. And I think this also influences a coverage strategy, but there, there has been kind of a, a quiet but not very bold conversation on the Republican side about some sort of price on carbon or some sort of action around trying to remove carbon from the atmosphere, which is a a big discussion, and it's one that we've been covering Mm -hmm. over the years. So I think we'll also 
start to to cover more and look more deeply at what pathways might be like through Senate for climate action, which look pretty limited right now. Um, and then the fourth is that I think you're also going to see a lot of action happening locally, and this really helps to inform both our strategy, but how I think this might be a, an important moment to, to raise resources and to galvanize folks as contributors and members is, is I do think we're going to go go to a moment where there will be a real pressure, a continued pressure for action to solve climate change at the state level. So mm-hmm. you're going to have states, and I would say there's probably six or seven at the front of the pack, but you're going to have states like Washington State, Oregon, Illinois, Minnesota, New Mexico, um, a set of states that could be poised to make some really quick progress on climate change. And there'll be really important stories to be told at the local level about what that progress looks like. And then the last piece, I think that will shape kind of climate progress into the next administration is thinking about the US agenda internationally, which is an important question for Grist too. You know, last year, because of COVID, there's every couple of years, there's this big conference on climate change called COP, which the UN hosts. And the next COP is gonna be in Glasgow at the end of this year. And that will be another really, really important moment for the United States to both re-enter the Paris Agreement but ahead of that, but then also really put forward what a vision looks like to decarbonize the U.S. economy um, into, into the, the, the conference that will happen in Glasgow toward the end of 2021. So in that, I think there are lots of opportunities for Grist to be telling the story of climate progress um, and also to be galvanizing support around what it looks like to illuminate and explore the solutions that can be advanced. Um, I don't think it's a 100% good news story because there there, are, there will be a lot of things that just can't happen federally given the nature of a, what may be a divided Congress. Right. Um, but but that's broadly how I, I kind of see the next, you know, at least the next year or two unfolding until the midterm elections and how our coverage strategy can start to match to that. Great. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Um, thanks so much, Brady, for being my first guest. Thanks so much. And thank you to everyone for listening. Um, please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. And you can even rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if you would like. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks again.